Let's open our Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. If you were here last Sunday evening or if you watched online, you would have heard a fascinating introduction, reintroduction to this book and probably heard things that you hadn't heard or certainly hadn't heard for a while or hadn't thought about before. And tonight we're going to read in the first 10 verses of Jonah chapter 1. So let's hear this together. Jonah chapter 1, reading, I'll reread the first three verses that we looked at last week, but let's read the first 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give, us, will, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. This is the word of God, and we thank him for his precious word. Good evening, good evening. We are here uh, in part two of Jonah. Uh, in verses four to ten, we covered the first three last week, and for those that weren't here, I will summarize very quickly. We met this prophet last week, didn't we? This prophet called Jonah, the son of Amittai. And we found out that in 2 Kings 14, we hear of Jonah before the book of Jonah that he brought a great prophecy of prosperity to the land, that under King Jeroboam, the, the, the boundaries of Israel were widened. So this was a light man who brought great prophecy. He ministered and lived in an area called Gath Hefer in Galilee, a lovely place to live. So he had a good life built on a good prophecy with a good ministry. And we, we discovered what happened when the Lord laid upon him a real disruption. His call that was now put on him to go, arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, call out against it for the evil has come upon me. What he's done is God has said, look, your time has now come. You're now no longer going to give a prophecy of prosperity, but you're going to go into the very heart of the evil Assyrian empire. And there you are then going to cast judgment upon them. And of course, we saw that Jonah fled. We put that little map up to say that... Um, Nineveh was 550-ish miles 
northeast that Tarshish is like two and a half thousand miles west in southern Spain that painted this picture for us of just the measures that Jonah was going to go to run from the Lord. So that's kind of where we were. We thought about um, temptation last week. We looked at the ships that are in the harbor that are ready to take us away from God. We also thought and reflected on what might God's uncomfortable calls be upon our lives. And it got me thinking as we come, came to this, I don't know if this picture, if you know the film, this is my favorite film, uh, The Last King of Scotland. Uh, Forrest Whitaker plays Idi Amin, the, the brutal butcher of, of Uganda, and the, James McAvoy plays a fictional character, a Dr. Garrigan, uh, and he goes to Uganda and becomes his personal physician. They become friends, uh, and Garrigan becomes the personal in the movie, the personal physician of Idi Amin. Uh, as Idi Amin's relationships do, uh, it did, they sour, and he is... James is badly beaten and he makes it on one of the rear flights out of Kampala. And the very closing scene is, is what I'm getting to, is a, is a scene of Dr. Garrigan taking off, looking out the window, badly beaten, looking down on the land that he is leaving behind. And he's gutted. He loves Uganda, but he recognizes if he stays any longer, he's about to die that things will be so severe for him there. And it brought to my mind this picture of Jonah sitting upon this ship on his way to Tarshish, probably looking back at the land that he so loves, not really knowing what was held for him, but knowing that wherever he was going was, for him, better than what the Lord was calling him to. I also imagine there's this point now that this is Jonah's... On the boat, he's paid the fare, he's on this boat, and now he probably kicks back and thinks, phew, we've done it, I'm here. And then, of course, we come to more interruptions. I think that's a real, the real theme of this book I'm picking up so early is, is the interruptions that we see. So we start then at verse 4 um, to 6. I'll just read them for us. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Jonah has a plan to run away from God, and at the very outset of this journey, the Lord will not let him go. The Lord hurled, or hurled, a great wind upon the sea. We see these words in 1 Samuel 18, as Saul goes to throw a spear as he would at David. This is, it paints, I think, to the immensity of what the Lord is doing here. The Lord is literally hurling at Jonah a storm. It paints that picture of how uh, abrupt this was. Um, we will come to the clear parallels with this morning's passage. Uh, providentially, that was a fabulous passage for us to tie this into um, this evening from this morning. Uh, but we have a group of sailors. We have a group of good sailors who know what they're doing, who know the seas that they are on, and a great wind is hurled upon them. And interestingly, this great storm is the same word that is used for the great city 
of Nineveh. There is something great going on here. And if Jonah is refusing to go to the great city, the Lord's going to send a great storm, is what's happening here. And I think we learn both radically uncomfortable and comforting news. We don't get to the real redemption story of this tonight. We don't get there. That's for next week. But of course, we, as we thought through a storm this morning and what it meant for the Lord Jesus to be aboard and asleep, we'll think tonight of a very, very different sleeping, a very different scenario that we have here with Jonah. There's a couple of thoughts that, that, that come to my mind as we open this. We start really in verse 4, but there's a real spiritual reality to this storm for us. We touched again on that this morning. Um, and in Jonah's case, it's very simply that we cause some of the storms in our lives. Tim Keller puts this wonderfully. Um, the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. All sin has a mighty storm attached to it. And I just want to pick up on this idea for a minute of what it means for this, not man-made, but, but, but the origins of this storm that affects not only him, but the sailors, is bound up in his disobedience to God. You see, we can't treat our bodies badly and expect to be healthy. We can't treat our friends poorly and expect them to be our friends. We can't put our own selfish interests first, all of us, and expect a church to thrive. We can't put ourselves first selfishly in society and expect to have a society that works for the common good of others. There are consequences in all of these things, and so it is with God, that if we violate the laws of God by our own design, God has built us to know, serve, and love him, and to live in willful disobedience to that has consequences. But I think what Tim Keller does so helpfully is reminds us very clearly that not every difficulty is some kind of punishment for a particular sin. I think at times we can live like that and think, what have I done to deserve this? And the book of Job is the clearest place that contradicts that, that says this isn't the case. It doesn't say good people will live good lives that go well and that somehow if your life goes badly, somehow it's your fault. Absolutely not. But the storm comes seemingly without warning and without reason. And often life storms are like that. We cannot predict the things that will come our way. We cannot predict and often we cannot evade them. We can't evade or predict our sternest of hardships, can we? They just come at us often out of nowhere. But God has sent this storm to capture the attention of Jonah and his deliberate and willful disobedience to God. Secondly, this isn't miraculous. What this storm isn't anything of the miraculous because a miraculous act is something that breaks out of the set laws of nature but of course, storms come from within nature. Rather, what we see here, as we looked at this morning, is this is God within his sovereign right as the one who controls the winds and the waves, exercising the power and the authority that he has over them. This is not God reaching out and, and defying the odds like turning water into wine, but this is God reaching into a situation and exercising his authority 
over something that he so easily and clearly controls. And I think that reminds us that storms don't happen by chance. You want two examples of that? Jonah 1 and Mark 4. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that God sustains all things by the power of his words. We read this morning that the wind and the waves obey him. And that means then that storms, floods, landslides, volcanoes, earthquakes happen by God's decree. And when storms come into our life, we face a really important decision of what we're going to believe as we come to them. So we'll either embrace the difficult, and it is difficult to wrap our heads around, the difficult doctrine that God is in control of all things, or we slide into the view that somehow God is just a helpless observer. Sometimes we can worry about the implications of believing in a God who controls all things, but I would much rather deal with the, the challenges of us having a mighty and a sovereign God in control of all things than the problem of a God who is just a helpless observer. If God just allowed these things to happen, that's often how we speak. It's what we find most comfortable. If God allowed these things to happen, this storm to happen, then it means that that God is at the mercy of some sort of other power. And certainly within that, if God is to allow and to not decree these things, then who is that God to help us in that storm? We see that, don't we? The crying out to the many gods that's about to come. Only the God that makes things happen can intervene to change their trajectory and give them a different outcome. And I think that's why we find such comfort and help in the sovereignty of God, that God is who he says he is, that we are in the hands of the Lord and that the Lord is at work. And I think then as we wrap up the storm, we we find as we reflected this morning that storms are so relatable to us that we can put ourselves in that boat metaphorically. We can put ourselves into the storm metaphorically. That there are great challenges. Maybe you're in the middle of one right now. And often what we do when hard things come our way, the first thing that we do is try and understand where and why they've come. Why has somebody died? Why is somebody ill? Why have I lost my job. Why, why, why? Some people might try and offer you an explanation like Job's friends did. And they were rubbish explanations because all they did was blame Job. And I think often explaining God's purposes or trying to wrap our head around God's purposes in the middle of a storm is dangerous business because what we know from the story of Jonah is that even God's judgment are a means of his mercy. That's what the big story is here. That even in his judgment against Jonah, he will use it for his good. And I think at this point here, Jonah knows that this storm has come because of him. That this has come because of his disobedience. So verse 5, the sailors, the mariners are greatly afraid and they cry out to their own gods. Again, like this morning, like the disciples, many of them fishermen knew the Sea of Galilee. So too it is with these sailors here. For this to be a storm that worries them, for these hardened, rugged guys, for this to 
make them afraid. This storm must have been quite something. The way it was hurled from heaven, it must have come upon them like absolutely nothing else they had ever seen before. These gentlemen, no strangers to storms on the waters, especially covering such massive distances that they would have. I think in them finding this remarkable, they will have, and they do acknowledge this as some kind of supernatural event. They recognize this amongst themselves, that this is greater than just a normal storm we would come across day to day. And it's interesting, right? Because we, we, we get a glimpse here into the heart of somebody who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus. As soon as they realize this isn't an ordinary storm, what do they do? Well, they call out to their gods. And I think this picture has great appeal for us today. What an amazing picture of coexisting in a tolerant society that lets every uh, religion and every belief come together. Much like I reflected on at our baptismal service, the Pantheon in Rome, um, the Pax Romana, to keep the peace. Bring all your gods, bring all your religions, just as was in the boat. Bring all your gods and we'll just pill out prayers to all of them and we're going to hope that something works. For many, this is that utopian, diverse, pluralistic sort of society. This group of men with all their gods firing out prayers left, right and centre, calling upon them. That kind of view of, do you know, we're all in a boat and we're all facing a storm and we've all got our own religions and beliefs and plans and it doesn't matter because we're all doing the same thing, basically, anyway. But whilst that might make a good picture for diversity and coexisting and everything else with in a society, it doesn't change the fact that after all these gods are called on, the storm still rages. The storm is still carrying on, this storm is still brewing, threatening to break up their ship. Is the God of the Bible, is the God of Jonah just another one of these small g gods? Is he just another man who believes in another one of the many options, one of the paths of the many. Do you know, I don't think they expected their gods to respond. Because verse 5, how quickly do they go from crying out to their gods to getting rid of their cargo? In the space of the same verse, in the space of one sentence, they cried out to his god and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship. There was no expectation that their gods were going to act here. And that's what they do. They start to throw everything in. Again, the magnitude of that, this is their business. This is what they do. They, they travel. For them to throw out their goods is massive. For them to throw their livelihoods into the sea shows the severity of what they faced. So we have then this picture of this storm, these sailors in dreadful circumstances, in dread for their lives, calling on any known deity that they might possibly have. And we have a prophet of the one true living God asleep downstairs. This picture that's presented to us is almost unbelievable. This, this storm is about to tear this boat apart. Yet Jonah is fast asleep. And this is where we divert massively from this morning's story. 
Because Jonah doesn't sleep for the reasons that Jesus sleeps. Jesus sleeps because he knows who he is, who his father is, what he is able to do. He is seeing what is the response of my people going to be. But Jonah sleeps out of apathy, out of the fact he doesn't care. But I also think in this situation, he knows, how can I call out to the God that I am deliberately disobeying right now? How can I? How can I call out to him when the only reason that I'm here is because I am willfully disobeying him? And I think it's a scary situation that Jonah is in, that he is actively hardening his heart in order to try and escape the will of God. And we move then in verse 6 to the captain uh, turning up, coming downstairs. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. I don't imagine this was a nice wake-up call. I imagine it was fairly uh, abrupt. And there's no accident. You might notice reading this that there's a couple of similarities with the very opening of the book and the word arise. As God in... Uh, Verse 2, arise and go to Nineveh. We find that right here, don't we, in verse 6. Arise, call out to your God. There's no mistake in that at all. And I think Jonah will have totally seen that. He will have seen the similarities of God speaking directly to him and God now using this, this pagan of many gods, God using him to speak to him as well. There's no doubt Jonah would have connected these two phrases. He's heard directly from God, and now he hears from the captain, uh, hears of God through the captain, arise, call out to your God. The people who don't know God are desperately crying out to be saved. And yet the one man who knows the sovereign God of this storm, who can save them is asleep. It's quite some image, isn't it? brings thoughts of the church in our current age, doesn't it? There is but one way to salvation for our town and for our nation. I wonder if they would be apt words for us. What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. You imagine being in Jonah's shoes for a moment. You open your eyes. You see this captain towering over you. He grabs you and says, what on earth are you doing? The ship's about to break up. We're all going down. Don't you have a God to call on? And Jonah knew the Lord. But how? How could Jonah, in deliberate, direct disobedience to God, call out to him? Locked in this conflict with God, he doesn't pray, he doesn't prophesy. But surrounded by unbelievers who desperately needed to know the Lord, Jonah had nothing to offer. Jonah had nothing to offer here. Why? Because his sin was so great. His rebellion against God was so great in his heart. Do you know this, this secret sin locked up inside of him? This torment and this conflict that he had meant he was absolutely no use for the advancement of the word of God amongst these sailors. 
His ministry had been totally silenced by his secret sin here. Unrepentant and secret sin ruins intimacy with God. It crushes a heart to pray. It destroys a desire for fruit and any sort of desire that there might be to grow closer with God. Because the closer you get to God, the closer the crushing reality of what you are doing and the denial of what you are doing is before God. And this is exactly where Jonah is. How can he cry out to a God in the midst of the storm that he is deliberately disobeying? If that resonates with you, I'd love to chat to you and see how we can support you through that because there is nothing worse than living with the crushing reality of habitual unrepentant sin in your life. You feel like an imposter at all times. You feel unable to do anything. You feel like a fraud. And that's not the way that God has created us as believers to live. So the captain here cries out, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. It's interesting, you think of those in your life who don't believe, and you think of those moments of real struggle, the big storms of life, and I don't know if you've ever offered to pray for them. I don't know if you've ever had anybody say no in that circumstance. I don't think I have. In that moment of absolute desperation, in that moment where the storm is absolutely roaring, if Jonah will not pray to the living God, then who will? The captain doesn't need Jonah to run his ship. He needs his prayers. Just like the world doesn't want the Lord to have his hands on the wheel. But you know, when troubles come, everybody prays, don't they? Many don't know who they pray to or where they look for it. But many come and many pray. Do you know, many of our friends and family that don't know the Lord probably aren't looking at us for direction of how to live their lives. But when storms come, there is such opportunity for us. Let's take those opportunities and not be like Jonah, who in this moment just really didn't know what to say. So we come then to the the, the second half of this. And Jonah, the prophet, is exposed Verse 7, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. The sailors knew that this storm was supernatural in origin, and Jonah obviously wasn't going to give them much help. So the sailors decided to cast lots and determine who was responsible. And it's interesting, I think, at this point that the sailors are in trouble by association with Jonah because they're on that boat too. This isn't their sin. This is Jonah's sin, but there are a bunch of other people caught up in that. I think we think of sin very personally, don't we? We think of it about the consequences I have to deal with, but actually what we see here is nobody sins in isolation, but sin impacts those that are around us. The sailors were paid their money by Jonah. They took him on and off they went. They had nothing to do with him fleeing the presence of God. But Jonah's sin was causing them real problems. So casting lots, similar to the practice of drawing straws. In this case, eh, the sailors are using this to discover the source of 
this circumstance to work out who on earth is responsible. And their assumption in casting lots was that their deities, whoever might, be, whoever might exist, whichever one is right, would guide them seemingly through this random act to the correct person. But what they didn't know is that the Lord, the one true God, would influence these lots and they would fall upon Jonah. Not only is God sovereign over nature and creation, but he's also in control of all those things that seem random. That's what lots here, I think, show us. So the lot lands in Jonah and the interrogation starts. Verse 8. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Like anyone in that sort of circumstance, I think these men are looking for somebody to blame. They're looking to try and understand what is it that lands us in this absolute car crash of a situation. Jonah, what did you do to cause this storm? And who is this God of yours? And what have you done to annoy him? They knew that they were suffering because of something he'd done. And now they wanted to understand what has he done. And we find here a caught red-handed Jonah. Totally caught. And he makes absolutely no protest. He makes no protest at this point. And we see then in verse 9 his response. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Interesting at this point, Jonah claims to fear God. The God of the Hebrews, the Lord. And interestingly, he mentions the heaven, the sea, and dry land, which would have blown their minds because these guys had gods for everything. Who would be one God that would claim to be all these things and have power over all these things? We have Poseidon that oversees the sea, Zeus who oversees the heavens, all these different gods from different ages and cultures and everything else. But Jonah sets a key characteristic, and, and there's something totally ironic about this because Jonah doesn't really mean he doesn't really mean what he's saying here, but yet still just the declaration of truth that is seen. But Jonah is proclaiming that my God created everything. That my God is sovereign over everything. That's not something any of these other gods are claiming. It's not anything that these men are claiming. These other gods that they didn't really think could save them would do. Jonah's God is the creator of all things that are in existence, which therefore would make him the ultimate deity, the superior deity. But it's quite difficult reading this to take seriously Jonah's words, I fear the Lord. Because, well, his actions show absolutely nothing to prove it. It seems at this point in these words that Jonah's religious devotion is nothing more than words that he is used to repeating. And we come then to verse 10. So Jonah utters these words just as he would do when he takes the prophecy to Nineveh in his half-hearted kind of way, saying truth but without real intention behind it. In verse 10 we read, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he has 
told them. And it's also very ironic that Jonah shows little fear of the Lord and the, show, and, the, and the sailors show massive fear of the Lord, exceedingly afraid they were of the awesome power of Jonah's God. What an imbalanced picture. We have a prophet of God not really fearing God and a group of people who don't know him exceedingly afraid. And Jonah had obviously told them he was fleeing the presence of the Lord. But I think at that point, Jonah's probably not told them who this God is and the nature of this God because now they begin to understand the dangerous severity of Jonah's actions. As they begin to get a glimpse of how big this God is, they begin to understand how dangerous his rebellion is against him. And by every account, the way that Jonah's living in this moment, he's living as an atheist. He's living as one without any sort of um, concern for who God is, for what God has called him to. All of that's a distant memory behind now in Gath Hefer. He claims to believe and fear God, but his actions are showing something else entirely. You see, friends, it is not simply enough for us to believe in God because we know that even demons believe in God. And we know that they fear God. We read in James 2. We read then that right answers and good theology aren't everything. They don't make us a Christian. But unless we fear God in our hearts and it leads us to worship him in spirit and in truth, our knowledge of God does nothing for us. Be hearers and doers. Building life upon the rock is so much more than just hearing. And evidently Jonah had told these sailors that he was fleeing from God. However, I think they just thought this was a, an interesting insight. That's fine, whichever God that'll be, he's fleeing. No problem at all. They would have assumed that the Lord was like their gods. But now they see Jonah's God. Now they see that Jonah's God has authority over all things. And it shows. What is this that you have done? They cannot believe. If this is your God and the God that you know, why on earth would you run from him? That's the reaction. The reaction here is if this is your God, why on earth would you want to flee from him? How on earth did you possibly think you could escape from him. And that's what we read here in verses 4 to 10. We read of this great storm, this prophet exposed. Uh, next week, Simon's going to take us uh, into the next part of this journey, which, if you haven't read the book of Jonah, I'll spoil it for you, ends with an incredible story of a fish um, that Simon will take us into. But I just, I think it's right to draw this comparison as we, in light of this morning, in light of this evening, and just show the parallels between these two stories I think it's good for us good for us to do if you weren't here this morning to recap the story Mark chapter 4 from verse 35 um, Jesus calms a storm and as you read it and as you read Jonah 1 you can see the parallels between the two and in fact the way that Mark the way that it's written looks like it's influenced in its writing by the way that Jonah 1 is written what are the similarities well both our characters get into a boat both the Lord Jesus and both Jonah get into a boat. A storm arises that threatens everyone on board. Doesn't just threaten Jonah, doesn't just threaten Jesus, threatens everybody on that boat. Thirdly, everybody panics. Disciples or pagans, doesn't matter. Everybody on both boats panics. 
And our key characters are both asleep. Those on board wake up the most, uh, the key characters. And those on board then question them both, Jesus and Jonah, in their fear. That's the similarities. And then we come to the differences between the two. Jonah was on the boat because he was fleeing the will of God. Jesus was on the boat as he fulfilled the will of the Father. Jonah's presence on the boat was the reason for the storm. But Jesus' presence on the boat was the reason that the storm became calm. Jonah was woken up, but he didn't call upon the Lord. Jesus woke up and he was the Lord that those disciples so desperately needed. Jonah was on a boat in order not to go to the Gentiles in Nineveh, to deliberately not take the blessing of God to the heart of the Assyrian Empire. But Jesus was on a boat in order to go to Gentile country, as you'll see in Mark chapter 5. Jonah had to be delivered from death. Jesus delivered everybody from death. So we see then that Jonah, this man, is a prophet. God uses him mightily here and later in his disobedience. What a comfort that is to us. What a comfort that the Lord uses broken vessels. But we're reminded simply in light of everything from this morning that Jesus surpasses Jonah that he was a truer and a greater messenger of God who came, as we've sung about, to be the light of the world. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Those words of Matthew 12 read for us last week that you'll hear plenty of. And what's the outcome then of both these stories? God is glorified. Maybe we don't see that in the big picture of Jonah at this exact point. But in Mark 4, the little faith of the disciples is strengthened as they saw the mighty hand of God before them. In Jonah, at this point, we see those with faith in many gods see just how powerless their gods were. That trial showed them that their gods were as nothing. And it showed them the power of the one true God. So finishing there, this Brings us, I think it shows us that sin has real consequences. That unrepentant, habitual, deliberate sin before God has life-altering consequences. And this is why continual heartfelt repentance is vital to the Christian life. Utterly vital. We come to this, have come to this table tonight to recognize all that the Lord Jesus has done for us. Friends, might we frequent the foot of the cross. And in the storms of life, there are opportunities to share who God is. Jonah didn't do a great enthusiastic response, didn't do a great job of it, but his mere declaration of who God is is going to go on and have a life-changing impact on these sailors. And we'll pick it up next week from there. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we marvel at your sovereignty, at your glory. 
we marvel that despite the disobedience of Jonah in ways he could not see, you were bringing him back because you had a greater purpose for him than the rebellion that he knew. We thank you, Lord, that in the midst of the storm, there were unbelieving men met with the reality of an incredible and all-powerful God. Father, might we be people who do not run from you. Might we be people, Lord, in the storms of life, however they come, whenever they come, why ever they come, might we be quick to cling to you. Might we be quick to live in the hope of the gospel of the Lord Jesus, the one who in himself calms the storms, the one who himself delivers from death, both on a boat in the Sea of Galilee, but ultimately on the cross. God, we marvel at who you are, who your son is and what he has done for us. Help us, Lord, in our walk with you, we pray.